to the Blue Collar Zen Podcast, recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is a long time since the last one. This morning, bright sunny day, Monday, January 16th of 2023. And after our morning meeting, uh, Sunim, my teacher and our abbot here at the Zen Center said, Myungju, let's do a podcast. So here we are. Uh, today's podcast is from a book uh, called The Four Chinese Classics. Uh, with, uh, it's translated by David Hinton. And the four Chinese classics are the Tao Te Ching, Chuangzi, the Analects, and Minchis. Uh, this story is from the Chuangzi, and it's titled The Four Adepts. So, uh, as usual, Sunim reads the story of the four adepts, and then after that we'll have a conversation about it together. And thanks for listening. Adept Offering, Adept Cart, Adept Plowshare, and Adept Arrival met one day. Talking together, they said, Who can make absence their head, life their spine, and death their butt? Who can understand that birth and death, living and dead, are all one body? Such people make true friends. The four of them looked at each other and laughed heartily. There was no disparity in their minds. They were truly friends. Before long, Adept Cart got sick. When Adept Offering came to ask how he was doing, Cart said, It's amazing! The maker of things is crumpling me up into such an embrace. A crooked hump sticking out of my back. Vital organs bulging over. Chin tucked into belly. Shoulders topping skull. Nape pointed at sky. And my chi, its yin and yang, seemed all out of whack. Still, his mind remained calm and unconcerned. He hobbled over to a well, looked at himself in the water, and said, It's incredible. The maker of things just keeps crumbling me up into this embrace. Do you resent it? asked Adept Offering. Absolutely not. Why should I resent it? replied Adam Cart. If my left arm's transformed into a rooster, I'll just go looking for night's end. If my right arm's transformed into a crossbow, I'll just go looking for owls to roast. And if my butt's transformed into a pair of wheels and my spirit's transformed into a horse, I'll just ride away. I'd never need a cart again. This life we're given comes in its own season and then it follows its vanishing way. If you're at ease in your season, 
If you can dwell in its vanishing, joy and sorrow never touch you. This is what the ancients called getting free. If you can't get free, you're tangled in things, and things have never overcome heaven. So what is there to resent? Before long, Adept Arrival got sick. As he lay gasping, wheezing on the verge of death, his wife and children crowded around, sobbing. When Adept Plowshare came to ask how Arrival was doing, Plowshare shouted, Out of the way! Shoo! Don't pester change in the making! Then, leaning against the door, he said to Adept Arrival, It's amazing, that maker of things. What will he make of you next? Where will it send you? Will it make you into a rat's liver? Will it make you into a bug's arm? Our parents are part of us, said Adept Arrival. East and west, north and south, Wherever we go, we follow their wishes, and we obey yin and yang even more completely. They've brought me here to the brink of death, and to resist their wishes would be such insolence. How could I blame them for this? This mighty mud ball of a world burdens us with a body, troubles us with a life, eases us with old age, and with death gives us a rest. We call our life a blessing, so our death must be a blessing too. Suppose a mighty metalsmith cast a piece of metal, and the metal jumped up and said, No, no, I must be one of those legendary swords. Wouldn't the metalsmith consider it ominous metal? And suppose, having chanced upon human form, I insist human, human, and nothing but human. Wouldn't the maker of change consider me an ominous person? I see heaven and earth as a mighty foundry, and the maker of change as a mighty metalsmith. So wherever they send me, how could I ever complain? I'll sleep soundly. Then suddenly, I'll awake. Well, Sunam, um, thank you for reading that story. I, you just in the as I was uh, between stopping your reading and getting the mic set up for this conversation, um, you said just pick something and, and start talking about it that comes to mind and I guess what it comes to mind is something really personal um, that we've discussed which is I've you know I've known you I started meditating with you when I was a teenager that's been uh, a long time ago now uh, more than 25 years and and since I came back from my own study in Korea in 2012, that's been about 10 years, I think I've noticed starting around that time was when it first occurred to me that you are going to get old. 
<laughs> I don't know why it took me so long to figure that out. But, um, you know, you've been very much like a, you've been a spiritual father to me um, in this life. And I'm very, um, very grateful for that. But somehow the past 10 years, I've, there has been some kind of sadness growing inside of me and, and some also some fear in watching someone I love so dearly, and not just you, but also my parents, um, sort of become, for lack of a better word, moving toward becoming decrepit. And, you know, you're 82 years old and you're very healthy and vital, and, and so you're not decrepit, but moving that direction, I guess toward becoming vulnerable and and um, and you when I first met you you were such a, uh, a kind of a strapping sort of powerful charismatic uh, man and so hearing you read this story has kind of reframed that um, this idea that that moving toward death is a blessing and that death can is can be a, a relief or a, a rest um, I guess that 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 part struck me, and that our life is a, a burden. But remember that that line starts with everyone knows or should know that life is a blessing, but what they don't know is that death is a blessing. That these right. are part of a whole picture. Right. And we can't play with just part of the picture. Right. In this case, we play with life, wanting to hang on to it as long as possible, fighting the maker of change along the way. Instead of yielding to that as, as if you're yielding to the will of your parents or your spiritual teacher or your wife or husband. Right. Yielding is healthy. Right. Right. It's selfless. It reminds me of something you've taught for a long time, which is that you can't you know, we, we, we divide things up like breathing in or, you know, inhaling and exhaling love and hate and this idea that and that we want one to go on forever because in a way it's it's affirming, like love, um, but then break up death are not affirming to this individual being and it's a little scary because it's it's very mysterious and powerful and very unknown. We can't see it. Um, and that yeah, so I think that true love it, it's really interesting how I did the same. I think it's a common problem is that we try to apply that love yeah. to very specific individuals. And that's what I wouldn't call true love. True love is that's who you become. And everywhere you are, with every person, with every situation, you're always manifesting true love. And in order to manifest true love, you have to truly be free of yourself. And we've all had the experience, for example, if you've raised children, every parent takes care of their children. And when they really take care of them, you can see it's true love. It's really caring for them. But oftentimes, oh, why doesn't that baby stay quiet at 2 o'clock in the morning? Instead of yielding to the experience that you've actually been creating, you wanted a family, you wanted a child, and now you're objecting because and that that's something that carries on. The, the, the lack of yielding 
starts to infest your life. Everything becomes a problem and you can't see a solution. Mm. And pretty soon your life is filled with kind of endless problems. So it sounds like the theme of the story for you um, is yielding. Maybe a more common term in, in our culture is kind of you know, a, a popularized term these days is surrendering, learning to surrender or go with the flow. Um, but yielding is a... I guess I'm, I'm wondering in this story, this clearly the you know, adept, which, which was his name? Adept arrival is dying, so he's yielding to the process of death. He's yielding to the unknown. And what I hear you saying is our resistance to the yielding, our resistance to yield is the, is, is the problem. Well, it's been the resistance that we've manifested for most people their whole life with yeah. yes, this, and no, that. Well, we seem to have a culture that is kind of built on unyielding. You know, we're, we're sort of set up to chase things that we want and then to get them and then to move on to whatever else we want with this sort of never-ending um, Well, people activity. need to understand that the Zen Center is different than that. Right. Like, when people come in, we ask them to yield to the ritual. Right. And, and which is, from our point of view, the glue that holds the community together. And that's as simple as putting your shoes away the same same way as everyone else. Being similar in that you're not dressing or appearing in some way to call attention to yourself. And then you know how to care for whatever you're involved with at the Zen Center, in the meditation hall, in the kitchen, uh, in the garden outside. Like, there's always something that you can yield to and just do what's necessary. So you're calling that the practice of yielding. That's beautiful. So you're describing the little forms that, that go on in the Zen Center for folks coming in and uh, to learn about Zen, they're basically learning how to yield. We're giving, not really learning how to yield, but being given opportunities to practice yielding. Which reflects some level of humility. I mean, yeah. you can see the difference when yeah. somebody comes in and they fight, even at the early stages of putting your shoes away properly. Uh, now you realize that's that's where the person has to start. What do you? What is the disconnect for us? I mean, why is it that we are built, in a sense, to chase, you know, to, to not yield? You know, what is it that is inherent to to us as a human being that we're sort of built not yielding? I don't think it's inherent. You don't? No, I think it's nurture. I see. Yeah, I think that we early on learn that... You could, and, and, and we do as, as young people, think that we're having to answer our parents. In other words, they're an authority, and we, if we bucket, we face criticism. Right. And, of course, uh, you know, there could be parents that w w would be criticizing, but my experience is that everyone, including myself, has criticized parents growing up. And you have to get over that. At some point, maturity says you have to get over that and recognize that 
you have to yield to your parents in the sense that they're adults when you're a child. And oftentimes, if the child doesn't learn to yield during childhood and adolescence and so forth, they become adults that don't yield anywhere else either. Mm. And, and I think that's just, it makes trouble for us. Right. Like so there's no, an, there, there's yeah. no sense of, you know, as I think back, if my dad said, you got to mow the lawn two ways, I wish now in retrospect, I mean, I did it because I was afraid not to, but I wish I would have just yielded to it and said, I get it. You don't want to leave any little strips and we can do it both ways. You're likely to get everything but I didn't. I mean, I wanted to probably do something else, anything but work. Yeah. So, again, there's an opportunity where, you know, I don't think of my dad as a genius in any sense of the term, but he grew up knowing that you take care of your property, you take care of your well-being by keeping clean and so forth. You wash the dishes when you get finished. Like, that th we have literally struggled against that and I see it still happening even more so than in my generation that it's just it's like why do I have to do that like whenever I hear somebody ask that why do we have to put our shoes that way like why would you want to complain about something as simple as that you you know you're going to take your shoes off why wouldn't you just put them where they belong like everybody else yeah because you're, you have that mind that you know better. Yeah. That's what you're acting out. I know better. I'll put it any way I want. Well, okay. I mean, it's just you're going to have a trouble in life. Well, that's right. And I guess basically most, most of us report that, you know, when we take our seat in, on a meditation mat or a lot of people talking about, you know, depression and anxiety, all kinds of issues related to not feeling particularly good, particularly uh, harmonious. And then there seems to be a close relationship to that and, and, and feeling kind of isolated. And then if someone comes to a Zen center and then carries that in here and says, oh, well, you know, why do I have to put my shoes away? Or sort of doesn't really trust the process of yielding, then I think what I hear you pointing out there is that it's a there's something very subtle about that. And if it isn't taught when you're young by your parents, um, then it's going to be more of a struggle to try to develop that habit once you get older. That's true, I yeah. think. So as a spiritual practice, I mean, you're sort of describing being raised in a way to take care of things, take care of your business, mow your lawn properly, brush your teeth, you know, practice good personal hygiene. Eat your vegetables. Eat your vegetables. You're, what you're describing there is that there is a, in that case, there is a parent who is overseeing a child. Mm -hmm. And so the parent ideally would have more wisdom because of life experience to understand what the child needs to do with the idea of bringing the child further along in its development 
toward a it's harmonious... An, it's an adult and a child. Yeah. That's all you need to say. And what you're describing, I think, in this story seems to be a similar process, but just at a, at a more of a cosmic level, like a universal level, that as we're, we're approaching death, we're moving into the arms of death. In a sense, death is also the parent here. And we don't know what's in our best interest, and so it could be very difficult to struggle against that process of dilapidation or, you know, moving toward death. They're, they're described pretty, you know, very vividly, the, the condition of the spine and the head. You're jumping so, too far ahead But here. is that what you're saying, that, that there is this similar element What there? I'm saying is that if you don't learn it as a child, yeah. and you can't yield to your parents, right? how do you expect to yield to somebody that is absolutely not connected to you in the most intimate way possible. Think about that. Yeah. Like, in some cases, you could actually birth your child. Right. And 20 years later, the child's forgotten all about that. Right. And maybe along the way, at whatever point... And it could be because of their friends, because of what they think they know. Uh-huh. They give up yielding. Uh-huh. You, you, all you have to do is look at your own life. Like when you're a kid, when you're young, you pretty much do and go what your parents want most of the time. Right. But slowly as you become, especially a teenager, that changes dramatically. Right. People get driver's licenses and think they're all grown up. As, and it's never true. Yeah. But... It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. It's about what you think is true. Uh I I always remember my dad saying when I was 15 or 16, someday when you get older, you're going to wonder how you forgot so much. Right. And even when he said that, I went, oh, yeah, right. Well, of course, it's completely true now. I'd have a million things that I would love to ask my dad. Yeah. And I never did. Right. Because I just couldn't yield in that way to him. Right. And in my case, at least, I loved my dad. I cared for my dad. Right. But I very specifically did things that demonstrate I wasn't going to yield to him. Right. And it doesn't mean I do exactly what he wants, but it means if I'm going to do something, I share that with my dad and hear hear what his take is. Right. And hope that my dad is a person that goes listens and goes, well, that might not be something that I would do, right. but I can see you're enthusiastic about it, so go ahead and try it. Well, that that's very hopeful. I mean, I guess one thing that a criticism I might bring up there is you're describing a situation where the parent knows what they're doing. And I think that, I think for for many people, they at some point lose the sense that the parents or the parent knows what they're doing. And in that sense, trust is broken. There's a sense that, well, wait a second, I did follow this person and it didn't really work out that well, so maybe I better just fend for myself. And maybe that, for for a lot of people, maybe that's where the unyielding tendency becomes. I mean, you wouldn't prescribe that situation, would you? That someone, you know, come hell or high water, so to speak, you must yield to your parents or to the authority in your life? What is your sense about that? I don't think it's... Again, I don't think yielding always means that you're going to now, especially as you become an adult, 
But when you're not an adult, and then I would say that it is true, you have to be at least 18. Nowadays, maybe you have to be 23. You have to listen to what they have to say. Or you're saying, and you it comes listen. out, yeah. and you don't quite agree with it, and, and you can say, to show you're an adult. Can I talk about what I would like? And then you lay out for your parent, mother or father, whoever you're talking to, what's on your mind. But a child doesn't do that. Right. A child either yields or doesn't. There's no in between. Uh-huh. And and you don't develop a relationship with the parent that way. And it doesn't get better as you get older because you've now established I don't want to have anything to do with them and actually get further and further from them. Right. Some kids actually move away from their parents not right. to be influenced. Right. They don't even want to hear that. And that so right. because they they may even know inherently, oh they're right, but I want to do something else. Well, I'm trying to tie this back to the story that you read and and I I, I think the point you're making which I'm hearing here is that we we develop this ability to yield as a child to our parents because in a perfect situation the parent is guiding the child in a way that the child cannot guide itself it's just incapable of doing that and so how does that relate to for you to the story of these adepts getting together and talking about and in one case experiencing directly and describing the process of death I'm not sure of the question exactly. How do those two things relate? The yielding to the parent and then the 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 inevitability of coming to death. No, but we're talking to adepts. First four adepts adepts talking. Right. And so they're the result of yielding. And even when it comes to something, is their body falling apart? She said, crumpling up. Right. They yield to it. Right. Trusting something bigger than themselves. Now, I think this is this is a little bit tricky. I think for us as Westerners, everyone understands if you yield to God, so to speak. I mean, you don't have to, but that's what you're taught, right? Yield to God. So, because God's bigger than we are. Fair enough. But... When the East came along, they said, basically, we have no empirical evidence of a God, but we do have empirical evidence that things are changing. Right. And we're not necessarily in charge of the changing. So we yield to that change, knowing that it's in that yielding that we grow and develop as we're going along. And so these people that are uh, these adepts talking about death, have come in this practice of yielding. We don't know in this story who they trained under, but we know that you don't just come upon that right. very often. But of course, the, the time that that was taking place, there were more people teaching yielding. And every religion teaches yielding. And I would say to people, if I was in a religion, or if I was at the Zen center, mm. and I couldn't yield to the teacher, 
I should go somewhere else where I can yield. Like yielding is important. You don't get over yielding by not yielding. You get over it by yielding. Put your shoes away. Easy. Are you saying that putting your shoes away is yielding to the teacher? To the Zen Center ritual. Yeah. I see. Which is usually laid out by the teachers. Probably their teacher laid out. My case, exactly right. I see. So there's a lineage that you are yielding to. Um, and we're, we're talking in this story with the adepts. These are, I, I imagine, Taoist adepts uh, existing. This is the story the Chang Su is describing not necessarily monks, right? But no. adepts. So in other words, seekers or, or practitioners of, of the way. And what you're saying is that yielding is letting is yielding to change, letting things unfold and trusting the process of change. Trusting what, what is bigger than you. And you're equating that in a way, you're sort of equating that to God in an empirical sense. That God, if there is, if we want to use the word God, which is tricky, but if we if we do, then we should, in, in our tradition, refer to God as kind of like the change maker, the way of change. Yeah, the Tao. Um, the Tao. And so our job as a human being is to yield to that, that change, the change maker. And we, we learn that, that practice of yielding when we're young, ideally from our parents. That very first relationship is the practice of yielding. And it, the interesting okay, don't, thing... Don't, yeah. Wait a minute now. Okay. You're, you're, you're rolling on here. Okay. Okay, so it's clear about putting the shoes away. Yeah. Now you sit on your mat. The, the highest thing that we do for per people early on is teach them meditation. Right. And meditation is about yielding. Right. Right? Like, and what stops you from yielding? Uh, mental activity. Well, you. Right. And so the yield means that you let it unfold and try to see the actual empirical evidence. When a thought appears, you don't do anything with it. It has some sort of life, right? and then it disappears. You right. don't know where it came from. You didn't orchestrate it. <laughs> right. You don't know where it goes. Absolutely. But right. you could see the whole thing unfold. Right. That's how you know, and that's why I say the first realization is that I'm not my thoughts right. or memories and so But forth. in order to get there, you have to practice yielding. Well, because if you're struggling in meditation... Uh-huh. It's because you're not yielding. When you're struggling with your parents, you're just not yielding. Right. Like, how much easier would it be if your mother says to you, my mother said this to me, please hang up your clothes. Don't just throw them on the floor. If I right. got up at that point, right. said, I'm sorry, went straight away in right. and took the two minutes it takes right. to hang my clothes up, that's yielding. I think that you're like, you must have a, a, a looking glass and you're looking back into my life <laughs> by bringing that up. My own life Your as own well. Life too, that's, but it's what's interesting is that I did not yield very well to my parents once I became a teenager. As you pointed out, that kind of happens. And so then 
lo and behold. And that's I, nurture. To me, that's nurture. Uh-huh. Your friends also are not yielding. Right. In fact, if you have a friend that's yielding, right. everybody thinks, you have to go home at 6 o'clock to right. eat. Hey, nobody else has to go at what 6 o'clock. What a square. That's what you say. Yeah, that's really true. And But the irony for me is that I then found a spiritual father to hold me accountable to those very things. But I didn't know that's what I was doing. I just knew that there was something inherently missing about not not having, I would say, uh, a kind of um, leadership in my life, right? Like left to my own devices, I knew I was going to wind up in trouble. But I, I'd like to ask you something. So could we reverse that? So, okay, the child is asked by the mother, please hang your stuff up. Don't throw it on the floor. And then the child just maybe listens, doesn't argue, but does not embody that, doesn't listen fully. They're not yielding. Doesn't do it. They're not yielding. Now, what does the parent do? Like, how how do, how do does a parent work with that? Knowing that, my, my God, if I don't help my child understand this process of yielding, they're going to wind up suffering in the future. So what, right. what can a parent do? What should they do, if anything? Well, remember, we're not talking about one isolated incident. <laughs> of course. So you can give the child many opportunities as they're growing up. Right. And at first, you could even surmise that they're not old enough to understand that. Right. So then you stick to what they can understand. Right. Right. That means, let's just say, we finished eating now, Johnny. Please go brush your teeth and floss. Right. And I want to make sure you do it. So I want you to come back and show me your teeth. Isn't that something? Yeah. Old school apprenticeship. You call it old school. It's just practical. It's like getting something done. People these days would probably refer to that as, as kind of helicopter parenting or micromanaging. And at the same time... That's how, you know, life in the monastery is exactly like that. So, well, if you don't, if you don't trust yourself as a parent, right, that's going to become apparent to you that you don't know what to do with a child. Could you? So, say what that happened? Again? Could you repeat that, please? If you don't trust yourself as a parent, right? At some point, you you don't trust yourself. Right. You know that you don't know what to do next, right. and every parent gets there. Right. I think at that point, there's all kinds of options to find out what other well-behaved children are doing. But eventually, in our situation, you get to a Zen center. Right. And you hear what we're talking about. Right. And you recognize they're probably not yielding people, the parent themselves. Right. So what would be better than a parent that has learned yielding, like Adam Plowshares or one of the adepts, and they're instructing a child? Right. Now, they they are a living example of what they're doing. Right. Kids are smart. When they're growing up, they, they see when you're not yielding. Right. And sometimes the parent does yield to the child when they hear, oh, all your friends are being able to stay out till 11? That's right. And what what did I say to you? You said 10, Dad. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'm going to trust you and say, please, we'll make it 11. But I need you to be here at 11. If you're not, then I'm going to have to do something different. But you're growing up. 
I can accept 11 o'clock. So I'm yielding to the child. Right. Making the child fully aware that, okay, we've made a deal here now. Can you keep it? Right. Right. Like, look, parents that we grew up with are not Zen teachers. Right. So it's not to say they didn't make mistakes. Right. But as a kid, nobody made, my parents didn't make as many mistakes as I made. Right. I made mistakes every day that I could look back now and regret. Right. Why couldn't I help my mother dry the, at least dry the dishes at the end? Right. Just cut the grass when it needed instead of my dad having just to tell me, please cut the grass. Right. Please shovel the snow. Right. The yielding kid just does it. Right. And they don't do it with the idea like, oh, I got to do this. They do it because they realize, yeah, I'm part of this family. I don't want to be not a part of it. Of course, there's a bigger world to be part of. But if I don't learn how to be part of this small world, right. how am I going to learn how to be part of the bigger world? And I think that's what we see. Right. We don't have the word yielding is kind of like, I think the Catholic Church uses surrender. Mm. Surrender is synonymous with giving up. Right. Yielding is not. Right. It's kind of yielding to something that you recognize, that you're smart enough to recognize. Yeah. Yeah, I think of yielding. Did you ever think when you weren't picking up your clothes off the floor that your mother was wrong to say that to you? No, it just was, uh, I, uh, frankly, it's just, you know, I don't care. I mean that's that's the that's the whole mindset is it's, I don't care why should I? Um, there's no evidence at that point that picking up the clothes is particularly useful to the clothes or to yourself. Like it's easier to just throw them on the floor. Okay, well um, let me ask you this question about that. Mm -hmm. So how old are you when you're doing that? Fourteen? Yeah. Okay. So at fourteen, you have certain things that you want to do. Right. But how about, here's the deal. Like you're making deals with kids when they're, they're young adults. They're moving into adulthood. Uh -huh. You keep things off the floor of your room, and I'll help you do this. Right. Otherwise, there's no help doing this. We're going to be stuck here because right. we have to learn this the same way that we're going to have to learn what we want to do. Otherwise, you'll take that same mind right. into the one where the coach doesn't know what he's doing, the teacher doesn't know what they're doing. Right. Like, as if you do. That's the implication, isn't it? Well, and what I can share for, for what it's worth is that had my parents not just barked about it and yelled about it, but, but literally come in and demanded it gracefully, like, look, you need to pick the, the clothes up right now and I'm going to stand here until you do it. I would have done that. And I think that I suffer from this in my own situation as a, as, a, as a leader within our community. You mentioned a bit earlier parents not trusting themselves. Um, I recognize that in a, in a way that was an indication that my parents didn't trust themselves. They didn't really trust their own authority to guide me and say, look, here's what you do mm -hmm. in my house. You pick up the clothes. Had they have done that, I would have listened. There's evidence in my life up till that point that I did. And so I, I, I think what you're saying is parents need to empower themselves here with this teaching, that there is a way, and the way does need to be followed, and it's okay to insist on yielding from children. 
Um, and I've seen you do that here in the Zen Center with people for you know a long time, that you insist on proper conduct from people. And people aren't perfect. I mean, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. No one is, a, is, is perfect in conduct. But the idea that our conduct has to be in line with us not just getting what we want and what's the most convenient for us at any given time has been met here by people with a lot of resistance over the years. Um, right, and what happens with every one of my students that I put in charge, Yeah, they will not enforce it because they don't see the connection. If you can't yield with your shoes, where do you take somebody in Zen from there? So think about every Zen center you've ever been in. Right. There's a way to do that. Right. And when you're not doing it, if you're lucky in a Zen center, it's pointed out to you. Right. Because what you're and it's usually pointed out. It should be by other students. So what you're saying is that if you're if you're not yielding to a simple ritual like how to put your shoes away, you you made the you drew a line from that to a bit earlier in the conversation to yielding on your meditation mat to the unfolding of, you know, well, yielding to the, to breath. To what is. To what, to change. No, it, yielding to what is. Right. Not what I want it to be. Right. Everyone <laughs> wants a perfect meditation. Right. It and isn't a question of perfect or imperfect. Right. It's a question of what is going on, and you. I need to see it, right. and then I need to respond to that. Right. And that's a really, that is such a stuck point for people. Could you talk more about the stuck point that you see? What is a stuck point? Well, that we're so busy in our lives kind of directing traffic. Directing our own traffic. Right. Right. And so suddenly, you're put in a situation where that just won't work. You're describing meditation practice now? Right. I see. And where yielding now is going to become essential. You can get away with doing enough so a boss feels like you're doing what they want. Right. But you don't ever have to be yielding in that situation. Right. Right. If you were, you'd be a better employee. Right. But we don't do that. Uh-huh. Like, we don't have quiet quitting now in the world because young people are are really thinking about the company or the boss and all of that. Right. They're thinking about themselves. Right. So the difficulty is, when you're sitting in meditation, most people are thinking about themselves. Who they think they are. Right. That's important to get. Right. They're thinking about themselves, but that's not their self at all. You're, they're thinking about what you're, I think what you're saying there is that they're thinking about their limited self. They're thinking, they're thinking about the thinking self, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. of course, we've all started wanting to control our meditation and make right. it superb. Right. Get something great out of it. Nothing is superb in this world, right. including your meditation. Well, in this story, it was repeated a couple of times that, you know, life is, people are, are afraid to die, but the truth is we don't know what's at the other end of the process of death. We just, we don't know. And so, but we're not used to yielding. We don't trust that process of yielding. 
But you can't so, wait till you're ready to die to practice yielding. That's right. Yielding starts, as we've been talking about, right. as a child. But I guess what I'm what I'm saying, Sunim, what I'm what I or what I'm seeing is that there's a direct relationship to putting your shoes away and preparing. Sounds kind of hokey, but I'm I'm seeing a direct relationship between yielding around something as simple as putting your shoes away in a Zen center to beginning to, to, to all the way at the other end, yielding at the moment where you're taking your last breath. Like mm-hmm. it's the same mind that's being called to action or inaction. Look, you're walking into a restaurant right? and somebody arrives almost at the same time. Right. To me, it's so obvious that you open the door for them. Man or woman, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. Why? Because you can. Like, uh, right. it, like, does it delay you 15 seconds? But people are often thinking, i got to get there first because there's a line I want to be ahead of this person. Well, what I hear you saying, though, is it's more than just because you can. It's because that's the way. Yeah, that's of course. In, that's in accord with the way. Yeah, of course. The change maker. That, you know, you wanted to get there. Well, you did get there, but someone's also there. And so you yield, yeah. and that that's all. That's a perpetuation of of spiritual practice, not doing it because you want to be a good person, but right. because you're you're trying to get in in accord with the way. Right. Um, that's interesting. You want to move according to the way that it is. Somebody's trying to pass you on the freeway. Let you let pass. off the gas a little bit and right. yield. Yeah. Like you can't find a situation. Right. Where yielding isn't always the best choice. Right. Somebody gives you the finger, calls you a, a, a you know, a, a nasty name, and with their fists like that. I've taught since the day I got here. Look toward them, just briefly, and make a little bow and mouth sorry, even when you're dead wrong. Right. Because they're unhappy now. Right. So you have a choice. If you yield to their mm-hmm. unhappiness. Right. They're left with it, and it'll go away pretty fast. Right. If you pour gas on it by giving them a finger, right. that's not yielding. Right. And that's our our situation. It isn't like we're bad people at all, but it's about nurture. Like when you come to a Zen center, yeah. you're nurtured differently, like putting your shoes away. You may never have thought of it before. Right. And I, I guess that this teaching doesn't interfere with you know being with appropriately leaving situations that are abusive. I mean, you wouldn't advise a person being abused by their spouse, for example, to just yield. You would say they're yield by leaving. I mean, I think that this doesn't preclude us from having the ability to, to determine, okay, you know. I, what, what I'm saying, though, yeah. if you're in that situation, yeah. yielding will always work. And then... When you're not in that situation, don't go back to it. Right, exactly. Yeah, because I've, I've, I've experienced that. I've experienced abuse in my personal relationships. And when you try to change the person or fight with the person, it just makes it so much worse. And so, and what's interesting about that too is when you resist yielding there, when you fight or you, you know, you try to change them, then you get, in a sense, hooked into the that that sort of that drama of of the of the cycle, and then when you do have an opportunity the next day, 
to leave and just basically say, I'm not going back to this relationship with this person, you don't. You don't have the clarity. And in hindsight, what I recognize is that if I would have had the clarity to just yield when they were being abusive, I would have, there, there in a sense, would have been no hook to go back to. Well, I think what happens there, and I don't want to get into this, there's yeah. experts in this field, right. but if we want something from the abuser, exactly, and we don't let go of that, that's right. Then you're going to be in an abusive relationship because right. early on, right, if you're clear and almost nobody is at that stage, right, you see, oh, they're insisting on, you know, they told me the dinner was cold and I know right. I just warmed it up. You pick it up and go, I'm really sorry, and you go warm it up. And then you divorce them the next day. <laughs> Well, exactly. the next day, or or if it right. goes on at that right. level, right. when you're yielding, right. it's not going to accelerate. Like it always accelerates right. when you when you fight back That's in a situation right. where physically a woman can't very often. In some cases, I guess they could, but or if it's a woman right. abusing a man, we've right. seen that rarely, but you see that right. that. You, you have to yield at the time. That's like, right, to protect both of you. Nobody, right. I mean, rarely does somebody get killed when there's somebody yielding. That's right. Like it's always some kind of a ridiculous feud. Somebody, right. you know, uh, cut you off and, right. and then you tried to give them the finger and they gave you the finger back right. and it just accelerates, it accelerates everything. Well, that's interesting. Now you're getting into this, this whole idea of acceleration and, and what I always think of when when you talk about these things and it's, you know it's very elemental like acceleration is very hot and heat has a tend it has a tendency to sort of you know combust and it, it burns it you. burns whatever it can and so this process of yielding is very cooling and you you used to more frequently refer to zen practice or meditation practice as water practice mm-hmm. and that water always seeks its lowest point mm-hmm. And so when you were reading this story about the adepts, that came to mind, this teaching that you've presented over the years of water practice and settling, allowing things to settle. Well, in a sense, that's an, an example yeah. of yielding. Right. The, the water will take the lowest possible point. Right. Well, and this reminds me, the story you read today reminds me of another teaching you've shared recently. We Now that we have this hermitage on Lake Superior, you've been talking about the lake and and it's it's the image that came up while you were reading the story as well was you've been talking about how the wave as when there are waves on Lake Superior, you know the waves rise up and then they return to the lake and then they rise again and return. It's never the same wave twice, but there's the wave isn't resisting either coming up or going down. Right. That's a beautiful. Oh, the wind's blowing. Teaching. That's why it's happening. Right. But as individual selves you know, we have this fear, you know, it's like we, we came out of the lake, we came out of nowhere, we don't know where we arrived from, we just know that we're here now, I'm alive. And we're also aware that our impending death is coming, like we're about to crash back into the lake. And I guess what I hear you saying is if you can find out where it is you came from, then you'll be fine to return back to it. Because oh, in a sense, the wave is dying, isn't it? And s- it's well, being born. It right. has it run, and, and then, then it, it dies. dies. So, how do you rec- how do you recommend someone with fear of that return of death of whatever? Well, again, I think you can't go to specifics like that. Oh. It all starts with <laughs> okay. seeing right. reality. 
seeing the fact that you're just a wave. No, but if you can't sit in meditation and see thought, right. memories, feelings, all of it, right. it just appears like right. you're not moving your body. Right. The it's, waves appear and then they right. return. And then isn't that remarkably impermanent? And when you compare it to everything else, you go, right, just everything like is impermanent. Right. Like, I see myself aging. I, I see the world right. uh, where one day there's a beautiful something, and 15 years later, that's torn down. Like, right. that's the world. It's impermanent, and right. we're lucky that it is. Because if we were just trapped right. in this body, particularly when, when, when it starts to, to cause us difficulty, to think that... We can. We want to prolong that, but you see people literally crippled, and they can't even feed themselves, wanting to stay alive, and just go. Well, okay, but ser- but clearly, that's fear. well, that's right. And so, I guess what I'm asking you is is kind of direct and specific, but maybe targeting that that fear resistance. What advice? What sort of concrete advice or, or tangible advice can you offer someone who's in that very situation, I think all of us find ourselves there where we're just resisting with no, not even seeing that we're resisting. You're using all different words, but I would again go back to yielding. Yeah. Where if you can't yield here, you have no chance of yielding there. Like, that's the that's going to be the most significant event in a person's life: right. their death. Even the awakened. Right. That's the most significant event. Now. Our experiences, I mean, experience of hearing what others do is that they're untroubled when yeah. that time comes and they yield to that because they've learned how to yield. So when you come to the Zen Center, if, you're, if you don't want to yield, you need to go someplace else where you don't have to. Right. So go to college. Right. Well, lately you've been talking about encouraging people when they come on Sundays or the beginner sessions, you've been encouraging me to encourage them, but also myself and even longtime Zen students. You've been asking me to, to get back to sharing with people to connect the mind and the breath. Like at all times, where is your breath? Mm-hmm. Are you with your breath or are you have you already skated past your breath? Like even in this conversation, I've had to remind myself to come back to my breath. It's like I'm breathing, but I'm not even aware yeah. that I'm breathing. So would, would you say that by developing the ability to come to return to the breath and in a sense let the breath run the show, that, that is that a fundamental practice of yielding? Well, I think that, that first, there's nothing more important to each of us as individuals than our breath. <laughs> right. We wouldn't and, really and be fun- anywhere with And that. it's fundamentally right. reflecting the conceptual framework of Zen culture. Things appearing out of nowhere, going through their transformation, and disappearing. Right. Including us. And when you yield to that, you can let it happen. Because what? It's not touching you. Right. So but what, what wait, we do what is do you, we get it. What do you mean? We attach there? to those. What, what do you when mean? When you just said it's not touching you, what do you mean? Well, if somebody drives by me on the highway, 
and they're driving recklessly, not necessarily interfering with me, but yeah. interfering with the rest of traffic. Yeah. What? That's just the way that it is. Uh -huh. But people get angry over that. For sure, yeah. And that can eventually, if they chase after the person, end up in road rage. But the the point is, if you can think of a better word than yielding, yeah. I'm open to hearing it. No, it's a beautiful word. <laughs> I think that is the word. Yielding. And so yielding on the meditation mat is to allow things to happen. And when you when you begin to, to realize you have to be the awareness that's seeing all those things. What you, what you think is inside of you, which is not true, but even if you think that, right. it's also changing. And then you look outside, right. and everything is changing as well. Right. So then the question becomes, what doesn't change? Right. And so, and that's what the adepts un understood. And so, what I and it sounds like what you're saying is you that practice can start on a mat, but ultimately. If you if you sort of forget about yielding practice once you get off the mat, it seems to me that could be a pretty big trap. Well, I think the, the you know it can't, comes to mind that I haven't said anything directly about that, but sort of hinted at it. Yielding doesn't mean you simply take abuse, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. But it's it, but in the immediate present when it's happening, you yield to it. Right, because that's that's the situation. Unfortunately, it sounds like if you're, you're wait a minute, yeah, if you're in a, a a concentration camp in the Second World War, right, yielding is going to mean eventually you could actually end up getting the gas, right, losing everything. But what's the solution to that? Right, you can get killed early. Right, but I think when you're yielding, you're more likely to be one of those people. And I'm not saying this is a strategy to say, okay, put him to work. Like, they're not ready to kill you. So you right. you sustain your time. Well, and whether they do or they don't, what I hear you describing here is an inner world, an inner practice that has nothing, that is not about what's outside and more and, and all about what is going on. I think what you think that is going on inside and you, you so you, Say you think you know what's going on. Mm. Everything's all over the place. Mm. That same person goes out in the world and sees everything's all over the place. Like it, it's always based on your experience. Yeah. And how clear is your experience? Right. Because once you begin to realize, I cannot be all of those things that are coming and going and disappearing. That's the teaching. I'm behind that. I, I'm, I'm the base of that. Right. that. I'm the base of where it's coming from. Right. But I'm fighting it right. as if I don't know. And of course, I don't know. So then each day you learn to yield. So what do we do before we sit? We bow. We yield. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and the shoes. And, and right. every day when I get up for the 30 two years I've been here now. Right. I get up off my mat. I kneel on one knee like I've always taught. Yeah. And then I smooth out my mat yeah. and I fluff my cushion and try to leave it exactly the way that it was 32 years ago when I arrived. Right. And every day since then, that's what I do when I finish. Right. 
but I don't see many people doing that because they're yielding to, I want to get out of here. Right. That's not important. I don't know what they're thinking, right. but I know they're not paying attention to what they're doing. Mm. And once you're not paying attention to what you're doing, well, it's the definition of being lost. Right, and you can even be lost while being in a sense. Well, and at the extreme level, not that we have mentally ill people coming, but mental illness is you're lost. Right. You can describe it in many different ways, right. but you're absolutely lost to the reality of the world. And we have the full potential to grasp that as our direct experience. Right. And meditation is the most direct route to that. Right. All the Zen teachers have said that. Meditating. So on. who am I to say, oh, they must be wrong? No, they're inviting me to find out for myself. Always it's about me discovering. Yield and see what it feels like. And it sounds like you're describing that meditation practice is the meditation that meditation is the the witness the, 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 the witnessing of change unfolding and not resisting. You can it. put it that way, I think. Yeah, that's really beautiful, Sunam. Thank well, you. many teachers have, you know, talked about that. Krishnamurti was the first one I ever heard. I ever heard yeah. talk about the witness. Yeah. But it's the same. It, it's what is. Yeah. And uh, and seeing that for yeah. what it is. There's a real kind of lack of aggression, a very palpable lack of aggression in that. I mean, when I see you at the end of meditation, prepare your mat and smooth it out, and then bow, you know, before you leave. I always. I'm struck by the the, the sort of the, the the beauty of that kind of humility because it's very it's clear to me that 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 you're fully present when you do that you're not just going through the motions and there's a real lack of aggression there there's a real palpable sense when you see someone doing that I remember when you brought me to one of your teachers Roshi and then in Korea Wandam Sunam these masters all have this very similar characteristic of of being not aggressive, in a sense, the the opposite of that, this yielding, where it's like they're not they're not in charge yet they're in charge. It's very it's very interesting. It's like they're totally in charge because they're not in charge, and they've they're sort of manifesting that. So anyway, thank you, thank you for this teaching, and thank you for sharing the story, Sunam. I hope it wasn't too long. It's been pretty long. One hour. Mm -hmm.